Thank you for listening to this sermon from Goodwill Church, located in New York's Hudson Valley. Goodwill Church is on a mission to be a hub of revival in the Northeast and beyond. For more information about our church, please visit goodwillchurch.org. Now, here's the sermon. Okay, so we are in week two, and we're in the second book of the Minor Prophets. Remember, the Minor Prophets are minor because of the volume, so there's less written, uh, but they're equally important. They all fit on one scroll. So we're in the second part of that scroll, the Prophet Joel, and uh, the Prophet Joel is a a much shorter book. You'll be happy uh, to note. Then last week, Hosea was a long book, 14 chapters. We're going to try and look at the whole book. Uh, And I want to begin by asking a question, seeing if you recognize this picture. And maybe you're thinking, okay, that looks like a church. You'd be right, but is it, it's a specific church. In fact, it is a picture of the chapel at Asbury University. Here's another one. Lots of people. So the reason I bring this up is because this has quickly become a bit of a phenomenon in the media. Asbury University requires their students to attend a certain number of chapels every semester, and so it's kind of a matter of routine for them to show up on Wednesdays at 10 o'clock. But on February 8th, when they showed up, they stayed. They stayed after They continued to pray and to sing, and it didn't take very long for the media to pick up on this and call it a revival. In fact, it was called a revival within about 24 hours. And it continued for days and days and days, and it's still going on. It ebbs and flows. It's going to end, though, because the university has sort of said that we can't do this constantly, so they're going to put some restrictions on it. But it's quickly gotten into the media, gotten into social media, and so because of that, it's got all kinds of different opinions. Now, revival is biblical. We see revival in Scripture. Uh, Probably one of the most well-known ones is with King Josiah, who is is, uh, repairing the temple and discovers the book of the law. And when he reads it to the priests, uh, they, they tear their robes, they rend their garment, which we're going to see here in, in uh, uh, Joel. And Joel says, don't just rend your garment, but rend your heart, which is a sign of repentance. But when they do that, they're repenting. That's the beginning of revival there. But it also has a long history in church history. It's a, a rich and important part of the history of the church, but it's also one that comes with a good bit of controversy. And the reason for that is because it's rather difficult to authenticate revival. How do we know it's the genuine article? It's difficult to ascertain that. And so it's, it, 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 we want to look at something like this with some caution. It was called a revival within about 24 hours. And we want to ask the question, well, what constitutes revival? And um, the reason I ask that is because Some of these components are very central to the book of Joel. So I want to ask, I want to make a couple points about discerning revivals and correlate them to Joel. The first one comes from the book of Acts. We just saw or read as the call to worship, uh, Peter healing the, the, uh, the 
the lame beggar and preaching the gospel and calling for repentance. When we get to Acts 5, there's something different happening. The apostles are in trouble again with the Sanhedrin. We hear the story of Ananias and Sapphira who had lied and were killed immediately. They died immediately, and, and that news uh, created quite a stir, um, and, and we read that many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hand of the apostles. No one dared to join them, but the people held them in high esteem, and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multiples of both men and women. They carried the sick in the streets, and the people also gathered in the towns in Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. And during the night, the Lord opens the door to the prison, and they're out in the, in the, in the main area of the prison, and they're preaching the gospel. And so when, when the court goes to get them the next morning to bring them to stand before the, the Sanhedrin again, they're not there. And somebody says, well, they're in the court and they're preaching the gospel. And so they go and they get them, not by force, because they don't want to be, they don't want to upset the people. So they bring them before the court. And here's what they say to them. They bring them before the court and they say, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teachings, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. That is, Jesus' blood, and of course, Jesus' blood is upon them. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than man. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Excuse me, he, I'm sorry. He exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to re give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God gave to those who obey him. And here's what we read. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill him. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. So he dismissed the apostles, and he said to them, that is the council, he said, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thaddeus rose up, claiming to be someone, and, num and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed, and it came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. Sc uh, scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. This is sometimes called the Gamamiel principle because it's Gamamiel, the honored Sadducee, who gives this counsel. And so basically, the first principle, the first means of discerning revelation, or, or revival is to be patient, is to wait and see. Is this a work of God or is it of man? And I want to stop here for a second and just articulate that I am not a critic. In fact, I want to pause right now and ask us to take a moment to pray. I want us to be a people of prayer. I want us to be excited about what's happening there, what's potentially happening there. I want us to be a people who, who want to embrace and pray for and hope for revival, not just in Asbury, Kentucky, but all over the country, 
I hope that it parks itself right here in New Paltz and does real work. So let's just take a moment right now and do that. Father, we, we, we don't want to be critical. We don't want to be cynical in our hearts. We want to be discerning and wise. And so we pray right now that you would begin with revival of one, a revival in each of our hearts, that you would awaken us, bring us back to life, that we would be hungering for you, and that you would do your work. We, we pray for the, the events that are happening at Asbury, that it truly is revival, that you would do your work there and that it would spread, that the gospel would spread, that your name, Lord Jesus, would be glorified, that people would be repentant, recognizing their need for forgiveness. Well, thank you for this. Or we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So patience and wisdom and discernment, because what is, how do you know something's revival? The fruit of it isn't going to happen in 24 hours or in 48 hours or in a week. The fruit of revival happens in the lives of those who are revived over months and years. Amen. And so that's one of the things we want to look for. The second thing is this, is the gospel preached. Is the gospel preached. That's the, that's the thing that we want to take from Acts 3, from our call to worship. Peter sees that he's healed this person and he's drawn a crowd and he preaches the gospel to them. He preaches the good news of the gospel to them. So that's the second thing. We want to look for the gospel being preached, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And thirdly, is the gospel heard. So it's not just that it's preached, but it's that it's heard and that it's responded to with repentance. That's also from Acts 3 as an example, one of many. Peter preaches the gospel to them, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and he calls for a response. He says, repent, therefore. That is the charge that the gospel gives to us. When we hear the gospel, we're called to repentance. And the reason I bring this up and how it, how it correlates to Joel is because repentance is one of the primary fruits of genuine revival. Are people confessing their sin and recognizing their need for a Savior. Here's an outline of Joel. And this should kind of give us a little sense of, of where we're going with this and how you'll see that for Joel, this was also quite central. We see in the first chapter that there's this locust plague, a real locust plague that Joel talks about in quite a bit of detail. It's destructive. It's powerful. And, jo and Joel assigns this to God, by the way. It's not nearly a natural disaster. This is God's doing. And the call afterwards is for repentance. The call of repentance. And then we see that a coming army, an army is coming. And this is uh, a metaphor of the locust, but an actual event that's coming. And the response, a second call to repentance. After this restoration where God uh, is pouring out his provision materially for his people after a time of, of suffering. And then in the remainder of the book, God doesn't pour out his material provision only, but his spirit. He brings judgment against the nations, those who were against uh, Israel. And he assures his people that in him and him alone, there is refuge. 
So what is the importance of repentance? Let me put it directly this way. The repentant find refuge in God. And the unrepentant find no refuge from God. That's what we read in Joel. That's what we read throughout Scripture. The repentant find their refuge in God, and the unrepentant cannot escape the judgment of God. So with that in mind, let's jump in and take a look at what we see here in the opening verses of uh, Joel. Now, Joel is notoriously difficult to date, and one of the reasons why is because Joel is one of the minor prophets that doesn't uh, tie his receiving of the word of the Lord to kings. So in some of them you'll read Hosea, for example, that Hosea is a prophet in the time of X, Y, and Z kings, and that kind of gives us a timeline. Joel is one of the prophets that doesn't do that. And it's a little hard to date this event, but here's what we, he tells his people, the word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders, give ear all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it. And let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. So Joel begins his word by telling the people that the events, the devastation of this locust plague is severe. You read, uh, what the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust has left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten and we don't want to get too hung up on the, on the titles here because if you read different translations in the, in the different English translations, there's some different ways to do it. The King James actually says a palmer worm, a locust, a canker worm, and a caterpillar. In the NIV, it's locust swarms, great locust swarms, young locusts, and creatively, other locusts. The New Living Translation says cutting locusts, swarming locusts, and hopping locusts like this, but then adds stripping locusts. The uh, New American Standard says gnawing locusts, swarming locusts, creeping locusts, and stripping locusts. So we don't want to get too caught up in the names, but we want to see that there's, there's this progression of destruction that the locusts bring one, uh, one onslaught after another after another to level uh, the area completely. Joel begins with this, and then he calls for a bit of a response before he actually calls for... for um, for acknowledgement first before he calls for repentance. We're not going to go through every verse, but here's what I want you to see. In 5 through 10, he speaks to the drunkards. What an interesting choice. Why is it that Joel chooses to speak to the drunkards is interesting. But here's what he says to them. He says, awake, drunkards. He charges them to awaken to what's happening here. And he says this. Awake, you drunkards, and weep and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. So, because of the destruction, they no longer have the vineyards. Goes on to say this, for a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. And he's describing the locusts. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lionist. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Imagine what it's like when you strip the bark off a branch. It's white, right? So it's a little hard to imagine such a thing because when you think about locust plague, you think 
Bible. So it's not something that we turn to in the modern day. But believe it or not, there is an event of a locust plague that took place in 1915 in Israel. It was documented in the National Geographic. Interesting thought here. But a couple of things to just tease something out about this. I have a little bit of a blurb here from a commentator and some pieces of this article. Just real short. According to the description of the plague by a man named John D. Whiting in the December issue, December 1915 issue of National Geographic magazine, the, earliest, the earlier stages of these insects attack the vineyards. Once entering a vineyard, their sprawling vines would in the shortest time be nothing but bare bark. So same kind of description. They're stripping it away. When the daintier morsels were gone, the bark was eaten off the young, young topmost branches. When after exposure to the sun, were bleached snow white. Then seemingly out of malice. Now again, this is the guy describing the 1915 modern day plague. Then seemingly out of malice, they would gnaw off small limbs, perhaps to get at the pith within. Whiting describes how the locust of the last stage completed the destruction begun by the earlier forms. You see that? Different kinds of locusts coming further and doing it in stages. They attacked the olive tree with tough, bitter leaves that had passed over by the creeping locust. They stripped every leaf, berry, and every, even the tender bark. They ate away layer after layer of the cactus plants, giving the leaves the effect of having been jack-planned. Even on the scarce and prized palms, they had no pity, gnawing off the tender, tenderer ends of the sword-like branches and diving deep into the heart, they tunneled after the juicy pith. This is precisely what Joel and his contemporaries experienced in their day and the various stages of the molting insects probably explain the four different terms Joel uses, right? Those four different terms of the cutting and swarming and hopping and destroying or the various different translations of that. Whiting, who quotes this in other opening verses of Joel's prophecy in the article, writes, we marvel how this ancient writer could have given so graphic and true a description of a devastation caused by locusts in so condensed a form. In other words, what we read here in Joel is exactly how this man describes the events that took place in his lifetime in 1915. This is a, a real thing that happened. And Joel is, 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 is describing a real locust plague. And some people argue, is, is it locust? Is it a metaphor? And what we're going to see as we move to chapter 2 is that it's, it's the real locust plague that sort of moves into the metaphor of an actual army and there's, they, they borrow from each other. So it's looking at a literal thing and then moving to something else. We want to see both. But first he speaks to the drunkard, but then he speaks to the farmer. In verses 11 and 12, be ashamed, O tillers of the soil, or farmers. Ashamed in Hebrew sounds a lot like dried up. And so if you, have a, if you happen to have your Bible open, you might see that footnote there. Um, be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley. Because the harvest of the field has perished, the vine dries up, the fig tree languages pomegranate, palm, and apple. All the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children of man, be ashamed or be dried up is the charge uh, to the uh, farmers. But what we get next is the priests. Put on sackcloth, sackcloth, excuse me, and lament, O priests, wail, O ministers of the altar, go in, pass the night in sackcloth, 
O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. That is, gather everybody together to pray. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. What do we have here? The first call to repentance. So we see this devastation, and then we see a call to, respent, or to repentance. And so, so Joel is saying, you're going to repent to your God because what you see as devastation is, a, is God's a leveling of punishment for your wickedness and sin. Then we get these words, and I want to draw your attention to something key, a theme that we see a lot in the minor prophets, and we see a lot in the New Testament, the day of the Lord. You've probably heard the phrase, and it has a broad meaning to it. The day of the Lord is things that have occurred in redemptive history, but always look forward to the final day of the Lord. So there's a sense in which they've occurred, there's a sense in which it's near, and there's a sense in which it is the ultimate end in final judgment, the day of the Lord. We read in verses 15 through 20 about this, and it sort of carries us in to chapter 2 as well. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, verse 15 says, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. Is not the food cut off before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God? The seed shrivels under the clods, the storehouses are desolate, the granaries are torn down because the grain has dried up. How the beasts groan, the herds of cattle are perplexed because there's no pasture for them, even the flocks of sheep suffer. This is the level of devastation from this, this locust plague. And so it goes on, uh, but this is the day of the Lord idea introduced with this idea of the locust plague. And that carries us into chapter 2. But now something different happens. We also see the idea of the day of the Lord here in the opening verses. And now we're looking at this, this locust plague that now looks like a coming army. So it's, this plague's already happened, but now we're looking at something that's going to happen. And the language is more militant. It begins this way, blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. That's the kind of call to arms that we see a lot in Scripture. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. There's the day of the Lord again. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountain a great and powerful people. There like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. This is an army like they've never seen. Here's how he describes it. He says, fire devours before them and behind them flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness and nothing escapes them. This is the level of devastation. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses and like war horses, they run and I want you to listen to this description because what you're going to hear is a description of an army coming, but it's so comprehensive and so impactful that it sounds a little bit like an innumerable number of locusts. Listen to, to the descriptive language here. 
Their appearance is like the appearance of a horse, of horses like war horses they run, and with the rumbling of chariots they leap on the tops of the mountains like the crackling of a flame of fire devouring the stubble like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them peoples are in anguish, all faces grow pale. Like warriors they charge, like soldiers they scale the wall, they march each on his own, they do not swerve from their path. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons. They are not halted. They leap upon the city. They run upon the walls. They climb into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened. The stars withdraw their shining. That's because there's so many of them, right? The Lord utters his voice before his army, and his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great. And very awesome, who can endure it? So there's this literal plague, there's this coming army, and it's bookended in the idea of the day of the Lord, and who can endure it? It should cause you to tremble when you think about this coming. And what do we get from that? Next, we get our second call to repentance. And we probably know these verses because we've heard them before. I've used them as a, a call to repentance in our service as an assurance of forgiveness. Yet even now, we read in verse 12, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord, your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord, your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast. Call a solemn, solemn assembly. Again, gather the people for prayer. Gather the people, consecrate the, the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants, let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. That means get everybody. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priest, the minister of the Lord, weep. There's repentance and say, spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations, which is the kind of language we hear a lot in the prophets, that and even before the prophets, that we're pleading that our sin would not cause uh, God to forsake his people. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? And so we see this, this coming army. We see the call for repentance, the pleading of the people to God. And the response of God is one of his outpouring. It's one of his restoration. And that's what we get in these next verses. We said the Lord restoring. And he's pouring out his provision for his people here. And what I want you to see here in these verses, 18 through 27, is, is we're seeing this outpouring of provision that's largely material but begins to move us towards the, the, the end and begins to move us towards the spiritual. So it's, it, the language is poetic, but it begins with material language. This is the response of God to the repentance of the people. The Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied, and I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. God's answering that call and that request, that repentant request. I will remove the northerner far from you, those who came in to drive them out, which is why a lot of people lean towards Joel as pre-exilic. These are, this is likely before or maybe in the midst of their exile. 
and drive him into a parched and desolate land. His vanguard, that's the, the front of his army into the eastern sea, the rear guard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will arise. He's done great things. Fear not, O land. Be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field. Listen to the, the, the material idea here. The beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The trees bear its fruit. The fig tree and the vine give their full yield. Listen to this language. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for vindication. He has poured down for your, for your abundant rain the early and the latter rain as before. It's material provision. He goes on, the threshing floor shall be full of grain, the vat shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locusts have eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, the cutter, my great army, which I sent to you, which is a little bit of both of these things that we see, right? And there's full acknowledgement that this is of God. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you and my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and I am the Lord your God and there is none other. My people shall never again be put to shame. So we see God's outpouring of his position for his people, his provision, excuse me, material provision and it's to his glory. You see that in verse 27. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is none else. What God provides for his people comes from him and from him alone. And this leads us into the last part of uh, chapter 2 and really kind of transitioning us. And what we get here is more of the day of the Lord and God's outpouring not of his provision, not of rain or material needs, but spiritual needs, the outpouring of his spirit. We read these words, and they're probably familiar to you. It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. I will show wonders in the heavens and on earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And so we see here that, uh, and by the way, of course, Peter quotes this verbatim and cites it as coming from the prophet Joel in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2 in his Pentecost sermon. And so what we know here is that Peter is giving us uh, an interpretation of these verses. He's saying that applies here. What Peter witnesses in his day in the wake of Jesus' first coming and the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost is fulfillment of what Joel speaks of here. Joel is saying what's coming in the latter days, in the last days, is the outpouring of the Spirit. Not just the prophets, priests, and kings like we see with, with, with the officers of the Old Testament, but to every single believer. The outpouring of the Spirit. This is... This is eschatological, this is the ushering in of the end. It begins in the first coming of Jesus and is consummated in his second coming. And here's what we get in the next verse. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Of course, what do we see there? We see a plain, clear, direct articulation of the gospel in the Old Testament. 
by an Old Testament prophet. Here is a declaration of the good news of the gospel. Two things I want to note about that. Number one is, this is deeply gospel. And notice that it's the ones who call on the name of the Lord, and that's all capitals in your Bible, which means that's the, the covenant name, Yahweh, the I am. And that is, in, in some sense, a, a testimony to the full divinity of Jesus. Because the New Testament says that when we call upon the name of Jesus, we are saved by no other name. That name is consummate with this name, the one true God, the covenant God. Jesus is fully God. And we, we see a little bit of that here. But we also see this, that people cannot call upon the name of the Lord unless they've done what? Repented. You cannot be an unrepentant person and genuinely call on the name of the Lord. You can't do it. You can fake it. You can use the right words. You can put on the mask in church. You can do that thing, but it's not genuine. You can't do it. If you are genuinely calling on the name of the Lord and will be saved, you're doing it because you are repentant, because you are recognizing that you are a sinner that needs a Savior. What a beautiful, direct gospel articulation right here in the Old Testament prophet Joel. That leads us to the last chapter of the book. And what we get in this is in large part God's judgment against the nations, but assurance to his people as a refuge. We read these verses, and this is God saying, I'm now going to turn my eye towards judging the nations that I have called to bring you into exile and to punish you. Here's what we read. For behold, in those days and at that time, I will restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem. I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, which is judgment. And I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided my land and cast lots for my people. And it goes on. Yes, what are you, me, O Tyre and Sidon? There's the nations and all the regions of Philistia. He charges them. And here's what he reads. I'm going to skip down to verse 9. He says this, proclaim this among the nations, consecrate for war. Remember, the call to repentance was, was consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly. Now it's consecrate for war to the nations. He's calling them. You might even say it this way, and this is a little bit loose, so don't hold me to it, but it's almost like he's picking a fight with them. Like, oh, now I'm going to call you to account. You have been cruel to my people, and now I'm going to call you to account. Listen to the language. Consecrate for war. Stir up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. That should sound familiar to you. You know why? Because it comes from Isaiah. In the beginning of the book of Isaiah, we read in chapter 2 these words. And Isaiah is looking forward to the end. He's prophesying about the end, the end of war and the end of battle. And he says these words. He shall judge between the nations, and he shall decide disputes of the many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. 
Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall, there be, shall they learn war anymore. He's speaking about the end, the end of war. But here, he's saying the reverse. He's saying take these agricultural tools and turn them into weapons. Stand up and fight. Quite the opposite. He's going to bring war against them. He says, hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Let the nations stir themselves up and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. And then he says this, put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow with their great evil. Maybe you might remember this from our time in the book of Revelation. In the third vision of Revelation, chapter 14, we read this now, these words about judgment, uh, the harvest for the people of God and the harvest for judgment. We read this, then I looked and behold a white cloud and seated on the cloud, one like the son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple calling with a loud voice to him who sat in the cloud, put in your sickle and reap for the hour to reap has come for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. And so he sat on the cloud, swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who had authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the, crust, the clusters for the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1600 stadia. The language here is very reminiscent of Joel. Put in your sickle, Joel says, for the harvest is ripe. Go in and tread for the winepress is full, the vats overflow, for their evil is great. This is judgment against the nations from God. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the Lord is near, or for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. Now this is a, uh, a verse that's commonly used in, even, uh, in evangelistic events. They talk about the valley of decision. Has anybody ever heard anything like that? where they, they cite this verse and then they call you to make a decision for Christ. Well, amen, but that's not what Joel's saying. Joel's saying that this is the courtroom of the Lord, and it's his decision to judge and render judgment against the nations. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. Heavens and the earth quake, but the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. That's verse 16. There's judgment against the nations, but here's the, here's the other part. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth quake, but the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. A refuge and a stronghold. Remember what we said about refuge before, right? The importance of repentance is that the repentance find refuge in God and the unrepentance find no refuge from God. We want to be a people who pray for and hope for revival. But that requires that the gospel be preached, that the gospel be heard, 
and that the gospel be rightly responded to with repentance. As we come to the table, I want to spend just a moment here and pray that we would be a people confessed of our sins, a repentant people that come to the table with nothing but our great need and receive from him his great mercy that he may be our refuge. Father, we thank you for your word as we do each week. And as we transition to the table, we transition to a a time of response to your word, to your word visibly displayed here for us in the sacrament, what you have done for us by coming and living a perfect sin-free life and dying a sinner's death that we may be forgiven. Lord, as the the elements are passed out, I pray that you would be working in our hearts, that we would be a repentant people. Our repentance would be genuine. It would be an acknowledgement that each of us are sinful in many ways and need your grace and your mercy every day of our lives. That we would fall on our knees and come to this table in full acknowledgement that we bring nothing but need. And you meet that need fully, absolutely, and eternally in your son, Jesus. If you're not in that place where you're confessed, we'd ask that you would let the elements pass and pay the reverence that's rightly due to this sacrament. Almighty God, we pray now and ask that you would take these elements, this cup and this bread, and you would set them apart for a holy purpose. That they might become to our faith your body broken and your blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Thank you again for listening to today's sermon. For more resources and information about Goodwill Church, visit goodwillchurch.org. God bless.